Good morning, friends. Let's spend some time in prayer as we orient ourselves to God's word and ask that his spirit would make alive the word that he inspired so long ago, but which still speaks to us so mightily today, this morning, by that same spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come through Lent and to Easter Sunday, and now we, we are at the second Sunday of Easter. And the human heart, even in the great majesty of your glory, can quickly grow tired, can quickly go weary. And so we ask that whatever it means for you to enliven us by your word today, to nourish us by your word today, to increase childlike hope and wonder at you, would you do that for your word? Would you be so kind to do that powerfully for your children today and even for those who don't know you Lord to birth new life and to plant seeds of hope that you will bring to fruition even on the last day with the resurrection of the dead and we pray in Jesus name amen amen well if you are worshiping here this morning chances are that you're a Christian or you're at least a little bit interested in some of this Jesus stuff, or someone has convinced you to come to church with them, in which case they're probably going to buy you lunch later. If you didn't know that, the lunch is like a sure deal. You can definitely get the lunch, so press into that. You're, you're looking at a guy who, before I was a Christian, there was a minister in Boston who would buy me lunch every week to be an accompanist at his church. Ended up getting saved through that church. So there's a lot of evangelism that happens over, over food. Wherever you're at in the Christian faith, I welcome you here today in that journey. This week I learned something uh, interesting from an outspoken atheist and comedian named Ricky Gervais. According to Gervais, those of us who are Christians are also in some sense atheists. I mean, he's, he's speaking tongue-in-cheek here, but you have to say, what is, what is he talking about here? What is he actually getting at? Well, I was watching a recent episode of The Late Show of Stephen Colbert. He used to be on The Colbert Report on Comedy Central. And Gervais asked Colbert, and Colbert is a Roman Catholic, he asked him, I assume you believe in one God, right? And Colbert said, one God in three persons, but yes, continue. Well, then at that point, he had taken the bait, and so Gervais took it and ran with it. You can see a, a kind of childlike, mischievous grin start to come on his face. And he says, well, Stephen, there are about 3,000 gods to choose from that people have been believing in over time. You don't believe in 2,999 gods, and I don't believe in just one more. You're almost as atheistic as me. To which Colbert just was like, oh, uh, you got me, okay. I think Gervais raises an interesting point here that's worth considering. And we have to ask ourselves at this time in the Christian year, why do we believe in the one God, the resurrecting God, the resurrection God, rather than any of the other 2,999 on offer? And if we look at Paul's letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15 today, he answers that question with one word, resurrection. If the resurrection is true, all bets are off. 
Christianity is true, if the resurrection is false, or the whole religion's rubbish, and we ought to just throw it by the wayside. Today I want to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to look at it in three parts. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at chapter 12. First we'll see how Paul explains that if the tomb isn't empty, our faith is. And then we'll dig into kind of some implications of this fact by looking at and asking the question, how does a resurrection way out there in the future for us have anything to do with my life in the present? And we'll look at two ways that it affects present life. The resurrection affects the way we worship God and the resurrection affects the way that we exist in time. Worship and time. So let's first ask what happens if the tomb isn't empty? And Paul's really clear in case you, you missed it when the reading was happening. It's not a good position to take with the Apostle Paul. Hear this quote. When we die, we will be pure and not entombed in the body, in which we are imprisoned like an oyster in its shell. Some people are like, yes, I love that. Which gospel is that from? None. It's from no gospel. No gospel says that. That's a quote from Plato, the, the philosopher from Greece that predated Christianity by hundreds and hundreds of years, that predated Jesus by hundreds and hundreds of years. So why do I quote it then in church? Well, the problem is that for many Christians, the term resurrection, when we hear that word, think of that concept of resurrection, that functions for us as sort of a synonym or a metaphor for going to heaven as souls when we die, right? We think those two are exactly the same thing. And this tendency that we have to Platonize Christianity, what it does is it, it inadvertently hoists a foreign grid and foreign understanding, wrong understanding, of resurrection onto Jesus and onto Paul and onto the entire ancient world, and it's catastrophic for the Christian faith. Now, those Jews who did believe in resurrection, the Pharisees, universally understood it to be the miraculous raising of a human physical transformed body that happens on the last day by the power of God. And even among those who denied the resurrection in the ancient world, which was basically every Greek, they hated the idea of resurrection. And not only every Greek, but some Jews, the Sadducees also, the ruling class, they were like, we have everything we need now. Why worry about a resurrection in the future? Even the people that didn't believe in resurrection always spoke of resurrection as a literal, physical, material, transformed, raising from the dead. Not Plato's empty oyster shell for the human body, but Jesus' empty tomb is what Christianity is claiming. It's a big claim. Certainly, Paul teaches as well in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8, for example, that when we die, we are absent from the body, but present with the Lord. Our soul, our spirit absolutely is with God when we die. And yet the Bible doesn't stop there. That's not where the credits roll. Jesus teaches in chapter 6 of John's gospel 
Not only that he's going to save our soul, but what does he say? I will raise you up on the last day. Resurrection is our inheritance. Paul teaches in another of his epistles in Philippians 3, chapter 11, that by any means possible, not only that he'd be saved as a soul, but that he would attain, he says, quote, to the resurrection of the dead. And of course, here in Corinthians 15, you heard it beautifully read earlier, if the tomb isn't empty, our faith is null and void. The ESV says your faith is in vain, and that literally means your faith is empty. Your faith is empty. But why would that be the case? You got to ask, why is there so many other religions that don't believe in resurrection? Why is it the case that for Christianity, this idea of a bodily resurrection is so important? Is that the case? I think Paul gives us two reasons. We'll look at those and then start to apply them to our lives. The two reasons have to do with authority and not only that, but hope. Well, let's first look at authority. I want to make this claim that if the tomb isn't empty, the authority of the Bible is. Look at verses 15 through 16. Here Paul notes that if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised, and the apostles are misrepresenting, and what it really means is bearing false witness about God. The apostles are, are basically lying, and now we're reading their lies and ordering our life around it. Not good. Earlier in verse 4, which Sam preached from last week, Paul told us that Christ was raised, and we prayed it in the creed, in accordance with the Scripture. In accordance with the Scripture. So now this implicates the whole rest of Holy Scripture. If the resurrection falls, then with it falls all of Holy Scripture. And not only that, but Paul says 500 people saw Jesus raised, including Peter and Paul. And so now they're implicated personally. Not only that, but as we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus in Mark chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10 himself proclaims that he will be raised from the dead on the third day. And if Jesus is wrong, take your Christianity Leave it aside and pick one of the other 2,999. It's empty, Paul says. But if some were saying in Paul's day and some are tempted to say in our day, there is no bodily resurrection, it's not that we lose only one article of faith, we lose the whole thing. And so it's a problem for Christian authority. You have to say, well, if I'm going to be a Christian and the resurrection is sort of a central thing, if we dispense with that, because of maybe some good realistic problems. It's hard to live in a human body, amen? We have pain, emotional pain, physical pain. There's reasons people say this. But it's absolutely positively devastating to Christianity because there is no more Christianity without the resurrection. It's not just one among many articles that we can plug and play and switch around with. Authority ceases to exist. But not only authority if the tomb isn't empty, your hope is. Your hope is. What does Paul say in verses 17 to 18? Look in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Again, the word means empty. 
and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're gone. They've perished. Don't place any hope in them. In other words, a tomb that isn't empty produces a gospel that's incapable of saving, incapable of defeating sin and death. But still, many will say in our culture, and if you look at all the most vocal atheists, and if you look at any agnostic friend that you'll talk to, and maybe people in your own family, maybe even some other Christians, they'll say, you know, though, I mean, there's still some worth to Christianity, but I don't need religion to live a good life. You ever hear that one? You may need, you could still use some of the Bible. The resurrection's a bunch of rubbish, but you could still use the Bible to live a good moral life. Um, But you don't need the Bible for that. And you know what? Actually, when atheists or agnostics say that, they're right. They're right because, look, Aristotle had covered the market and cornered the market on ethics way before Jesus was even born. Aristotle was a Greek philosopher, right? If all you're looking for is a decent way to live, you don't need an empty tomb. You just need an ethical code. You can get that from a podcast or from an ancient philosopher. You don't need to get that from some mythology of the resurrection, so-called, according to that view. Now, don't get me wrong. For Paul, moral living is crucially important. But if all that Christianity is, is just one other way of being moral and being nice, Paul says, man, that's empty. That's in vain. He even says in verse 19, in fact, you are most to be pitied among all people. Isn't that heavy when Paul says that? And this is why he says it. Because moralistic occupied tomb Christianity presents us with a failed Messiah who is The ultimate example of the nice guy who finished last and then got crucified for it. Hardly someone who can save us. A Jesus who rode into Jerusalem for us, but didn't make it out alive. A guy who meant well, but was dead wrong, and now he's just plain dead, and so is your faith. An almost savior, who in actuality can't save anybody. Let us proclaim the tragedy of faith. Christ has died. Christ isn't risen. Christ will come again. Imagine if that was our Easter proclamation. And then we said, yeah, but there's still some good moral stuff in there. Come on. No. An occupied tomb means that we have an empty faith. And an empty faith undercuts the authority on which we stand And it undercuts any chance at having saving hope. Either Jesus is raised from the dead and it's all true. Or Jesus wasn't raised and you ought to get that lunch early, friend. Because there's no reason to be here. Please don't leave. (laughs) Please don't leave. (laughs) That's Paul's first major point. If the tomb isn't empty, our faith is. But you have to ask yourself, I wonder if you've asked yourself this. I had to do it a lot this week. What difference does a resurrection that happened in AD 33 and my resurrection, which will happen at the end of time, what difference does that make on the practical living of day-to-day life? Now, surely as Christians, we would say, oh, it must make all the difference in the world. But, but think about it. It's not immediately obvious how something so far out ahead affects something that's happening here 
and now. And there are probably millions of reasons that we could look at, but we're going to look at only two. The resurrection that is behind us in Jesus and far out ahead for us resurrects the way we worship God and it resurrects the way that we live in time. And I think these are two profound applications of the passage. For the first one, we'll look at resurrected worship. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 24. I'm going to kind of sneak out of Corinthians for a minute. Getting a little tricky here as a preacher. Two passages to turn to today. But because I figure, well, we're talking about Jesus' resurrection, we ought to ask him what he thinks about it too. Right. Paul's good. Paul gives us some good stuff. Luke 24, what's happening? Jesus has been crucified. Jesus raises from the dead. And now his very confused, sad disciples are walking a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem on the Emmaus Road. And Jesus rocks up alongside them and starts walking with them. Imagine this happening. Now, it says in the text, you don't have to read it through. I'll, I'll kind of just bring you through it. But I want you to situate yourself there for a minute. It says in the text that when they saw Jesus, Jesus' two disciples, they didn't recognize who he was, which is a curious thing. Was Jesus wearing a disguise? You know, did he have one of those fake mustaches you get at the party store? I don't know. I, I think that would be awesome if Jesus did that, quite frankly. He'd only make me want to worship him more. But whatever the case was, Jesus intended to walk alongside them for a bit without really being noticed. He's raised from the dead. He's physically walking with them. And it's really interesting. If you look at verse 16, it says this. Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Jesus himself drew near and went with them. You know, after a hectic Easter season when you've been on the spiritual high of having full orchestration and thousands of people here in Holy Communion, sometimes it can feel like kind of the week after Christmas where you got to start packing up the Christmas tree and putting the decorations away. It go from a spiritual high mountaintop to kind of like a spiritual swamp. And you're like, wait a minute, I thought Lent was over, right? It's like, well, welcome to the second week of Easter. It's like, how can you compete with that? And sometimes we notice this in our souls. The first thing I want you to recognize is that Jesus draws near to us even when we can't sense his presence. Jesus comes alongside the disciples who are distraught, who don't feel his presence have you ever been to church and not feel God's presence? Some people are like, yep, today, right? That's okay. Because these guys were walking and saying, our Savior's been crucified. We don't know. And Jesus takes the initiative and comes to them. The next thing that Jesus does is take them through Scripture and he explains to them how everything in this book relates to his death and resurrection, the death and resurrection of the Messiah. They still don't know that it's Jesus. But what does Jesus do? He opens up the word and shows them the Messiah from Genesis all the way through the rest of the Testament. Jesus opens scripture with them. And then it says this in verse 29. When they got to their destination, hear this now. Jesus says, okay, I'm going to leave. He starts walking away. And this is what the text says. The disciples said, no, no, they still don't know it's Jesus. They said, stay with us. Stay with us. And then Luke reiterates it. And Jesus went to stay with them. I think it was interesting that, Nicholas, you were praying that prayer earlier that ended with, stay with us, Jesus. And I had no idea he was going to preach that. But this is a powerful thing. 
How often do you feel when you're at the spiritual low, when you don't feel the presence of God after you've been on a spiritual mountaintop high, when all you can get out is, Jesus, stay. Jesus, stay. I, I, I don't feel your presence. I know it's the Easter season, but Jesus, would you stay? I don't, even, I, I don't even know if it's you, but stay, Lord. And what did Jesus do? He stayed with them. And after a long time of being present with Jesus, the story ends with Jesus taking bread. And what does he do? He breaks the bread. And it says, and he became known to them in the breaking of bread. And then Jesus disappears. And what do they say at the end? At the end of the passage in verse 35, it says, weren't our hearts burning within us as he opened up the word of God and their eyes were opened in the breaking of bread. And that's what they told the disciples. Why do I share this on this particular day? Well, friends, when our feelings haven't caught up to the facts of 1 Corinthians 15, we have a Savior who's risen despite our feelings. He's still risen even if we don't feel his presence. And he offers to us, just like he offered the men, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, the word and sacrament the scripture and the breaking of bread to say, stay with us, Jesus. Stay with us, Jesus. And it's an invitation really to say, if the facts of resurrection are something you affirm, but the feeling is something you're chasing or lost, maybe what you need to do is lean on Jesus by leaning on the liturgy. And you say, isn't that kind of rote? Isn't that rote religion? No, it's one of the gifts of the Anglican tradition. That when you come to hear the word of God, you're not just hearing words, but the presence of Jesus is coming through the spirit into your heart by those words. And when you come to the table to partake of his body and blood, you're not just remembering what he did back then, you're participating in his life now. You're drawing all the power of heaven into the present, even if you don't feel it. Because his resurrection doesn't depend on your feelings, it depends on an empty tomb. It's there despite your feelings. Jesus resurrects worship for us so that we don't have to take 1 Corinthians and get a PhD in theology before we can draw close to him. All we need to do is say, stay with us. Stay with us, Lord. Stay with us. Let me take you back into 1 Corinthians 15. You're flipping around like crazy today. 1 Corinthians 15. It's the last flip. If you've got a phone, then you're like, not a problem. Just a couple, a couple buttons. 1 Corinthians 15. Starting at verse 20, this is where Paul says, hey, look, Christ is the first fruits. What does that mean? Well, if you've ever looked into this and agriculture now or then, the first fruits is a harvest metaphor. If Jesus is the first fruits, that means a harvest is coming. And Paul's point is we're part of that harvest. But still, I ask the same question, my friends. What does a harvest way out ahead of us have to do with me here now in Northern Virginia? Does it have any significance other than a distant hope and something I look back to? I think it does. First, I want to ask, why hasn't he come already? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, it's been a long time, Jesus. It's been over 2,000 years. I would like you to come. Lord Jesus, please come. Whenever I ask that question, I'm also cognizant of the fact that if Jesus came in A.D. 50 for his coming again, for his second coming, I wouldn't even be here to ask the question, right? Because I wouldn't exist. 
And there is this sense that the delay of Christ is in one sense mysterious, but it's also merciful. It's also merciful. It makes a way for millions more to be saved and to come into the kingdom of God. What does it say in 1 Timothy 2 verse 4? It says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. He desires all to repent and to be saved. The book of Ezekiel says in chapter 18, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the Lord God, and not rather that the wicked should turn from his way and live. In the broad scope of salvation history in the Bible's testimony, Christ's delay is for the sake of mercifully saving the many among whom are you. And we can thank God even as we wonder, where are you, Lord? Stay with us a bit longer. Come back with us. A few nights ago, I had a, a strange dream, a nightmare really. I've been reflecting on it for a couple days as I've been thinking about the resurrection and the topic of this sermon. And in this dream, it was really weird. It just came out of nowhere. I was just clumsily fumbling an hourglass. I was fumbling it and, you know, it's the kind of thing you know it's going to fall. Those are the worst in dreams. And of course, what happens? Smash it falls, all the sand in the hourglass is all spilling out of the shards of glass on the floor. In the dream, I just drop to the floor and start scooping up the sand. I've got the sand in my hands. I've got the sand in my hands. And then I start noticing, right, what happens when you hold sand in your hands at the beach. It starts just dribbling out of your hands. And you, so in the dream, it really felt like I was holding my fingers tightly like this. And the sand was just kind of draining out and I'm yelling, no, stop, no, no, stop. But of course, at the end, I'm standing there with empty hands and sand that's fallen into what was the floor, but it's now just darkness, gone. And I wake up wondering, what is that dream? What does that mean? What is your self-conscious saying, John? And I quickly remembered that earlier I had come up, uh, you know how iPhones do this or smartphones? It'll say, this time... 10 years ago, right? Remember that? And then it starts playing all this music, and you, it really starts to move you. And I remember I had one of those aches, those human aches that either an atheist could have, an agnostic could have, a Christian, or anybody could have, really. The ache when you look at a random old photo and you realize, I can't, I can't go back. I can't go, I wish I could. I wish I could hold on to the sand. I wish I could go back. I wish I could go back. These particular photos were from when we lived in Scotland, when I was doing my doctoral work. And we were barely able to survive out there. My wife was working at the university. Um, I was working, and we were barely able to survive. Thank God for Eldi. That really helped. But these photos had this picture of, you know, my son when he was a newborn. You take your, your child home from the hospital. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. So he was crying a lot. So I called the National Health Service in Australia. And I can see these pictures from right around that time. And I'm remembering, it's kind of an ache, but a good ache, right? And I remember calling the National Health Service and I said, excuse me, my, my newborn baby is constantly crying. I think there's something wrong. To which the Scottish nurse just replied, you've got to be kidding me. It's a baby. To which I responded, and I'm not exaggerating, okay, well, 
I think I need to come into the ER because I have this ungodly headache and I think something's really wrong. To which she promptly yelled at me, Oh, I take a few Tylenol. You're a grown man, not a baby. <laughs> well deserved, miss. Thank you for your wisdom. Sometimes it's the ache of gratitude. Other times it's the ache of regret, isn't it? Sometimes it's the ache of sentimental, nostalgic longing. But other times it's a different kind of ache. It's the ache of guilt and shame. Sometimes you want to go back to relive the moment. Sometimes you want to go back to erase it. For both the Christian and the agnostic alike, whether our intention is to revisit the sentimental or to erase the shame, fact is we can't go back. We'll never go back. And we experience that as an ache, the last grain of meaningful sand draining from the grip of our hands. We just can't hold it. That's time. We exist in it, but not for the Christian. Yes, we can't go back, but for the Christian, the ache of not being able to go backward is ultimately and ultimately eclipsed by the ability for us to go forever forward because of the cross and the resurrection. Time itself is transformed so that we don't have to look and only ache at the past, but we can say every moment that I pour into my seven-year-old is not just pouring into my seven-year-old, but to pouring into eternity forever with God because of the resurrection. Every moment that we pour into our kids is an eternal moment as well as a passing temporal precious moment forward in body and in spirit forward because of Christ's resurrection friends the sand of time will constantly slip out of our fingers and we will be saying don't go don't go don't go but it goes and that's it and we struggle mightily to hold on to every single granule that we can each precious memory each unrepeatable moment of life. But rest assured that when the last grain of sand sifts through your fingers and falls away, and it will fall, and it is painful, God is able to resurrect what we are unable to hold on to. It might have slipped away from you, but it will never slip away from God. And when the dust finally settles, it will be God who will himself breathe the breath of life into the dust that's fallen, just like he did for Adam in the garden, saying, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let us pray. Lord, for the seeker who wants to say, Is Christianity just a good way to live, or is it the whole truth? For the Christian who wonders, what does this have to do with me now and my family and my stage of life? With all the memories I've had and all the memories I've lost. All the things I've done that I wish I didn't do and all the things I did that I wish I could go back and do again. Eternity transforms existence for us. And it only does that because the tomb is empty. And so we praise you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. And we ask that you would continue to resurrect our lives in every way that all may come to know you and we may come to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.